Even as we prepare to hear God's word together, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read the closing verses from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33 down through verse 36. I'll read these verses, then we will pray and begin to dig into God's word together today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Listen as I read God's word. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, even as we come to you at this time, whenever we open your word, we understand that it is your word. That it requires a spiritual understanding. We would ask God that you would help us as your people who are gathered here this morning in Jesus name. Uh, that as we would consider your scripture and the things that it unfolds to us. And really this morning as we consider a multitude of scriptures. Lord our desire is that um, you would through the things we consider today continue to exalt yourself in our understanding so that we would ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. Lord, that you would uh, humble us before the reality of your revelation and the reality of our own human limitations and that we would stand in awe of you and that um, we would look to you, we would listen to you, that we would lean upon you with our whole hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that you would grant that I would speak very faithfully and very clearly your word God I ask that those who you have brought here this morning that they they would hear and they would understand and they would receive Lord when we consider the things of God we just pray that you would would help us as we uh, plumb these depths in Jesus name we pray amen uh, I have just returned from India and we've been considering over the last three weeks there uh, the issue of the doctrine of God and, and really when as we begin to move into and the class there and consider the idea of the doctrine of God you first begin the course with something that's called prolegomena where you start with what what comes before in how you, you can do a doctrine of God but you've got to start with well how do we come to know God what where how do we approach that what's the method where will we get this understanding now, the passage that I read by way of introduction, this is that closing section to Romans chapter 11. And those who have studied in any detail the book of Romans, being that book that really is uh, the most thorough and complicated theologically uh, uh, 
filled book that we have because it's a situation where unlike other churches where he had gone there and visited and taught and established the church and then moved on and then would write to them certain letters of clarification and correction and expansion to the church at Rome he hadn't been there and so he writes to them with a desire to go to them. And so he really begins to build a thorough expression of a right understanding of who God is and, and how God is working out his purposes and his grace and his salvation. And, and the way that this book unfolds, for those who have looked at it in any detail, you know that the first 11 chapters of that book are, are very theological in their uh, constitution they're what we call the indicative they're the things where he is constantly declaring what is true and now following this as you transition to chapter 12 on through verse 16 you move on from the indicative these things being so therefore as a result because it is to the imperative how that should now cause us to live to worship, to serve, how that will look. And so, so you, at the end of really this, this big, momentous theological um, treatment that he gives, he ends with these words in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. Now, as we begin to consider and open that up, the, the title we were looking at this morning is the idea of this, the inscrutable wisdom, ways and works of the incomparable God. Now, I want us to just consider this for a moment because the scriptures lay this out repeatedly. And if we don't get this, you're going to miss it. Uh, I mean, this is one of the challenges. Uh, I've given this example before, and, and I want us to be aware of it. If you don't start in the right place, it's possible that you will end in the wrong place. If I get up in the morning, I'm preparing to put on this shirt, and for some reason, button number one goes in hole number two. I work my way down the shirt. Now, each one is still nonetheless properly spaced. And so they're fitting. So I may not realize I've made a mistake until when? I get to the bottom and there is either one more hole or one more button and the shirt is askew. And I realize, oh no. But I ask you this. Did I make one mistake? Or did I make 12 mistakes? It is possible that because I made one mistake... Every subsequent button went in the wrong hole because of the wrong starting point. So starting point can be, in certain things, very important. Now, here, as this is unfolding, I want us to begin to see the idea of how God is incomparable. And we have to be cautious in our approach to understanding. In addition to the warnings we have in 1 Corinthians where now we know in part and prophesy in part... Noting that what we can lay hold of now is only partial. It is not total. It is not comprehensive. We cannot completely comprehend God. He is incomprehensible. Yet, what he has been pleased to reveal is real, is true, 
and is trustworthy. So just because we cannot know all does not mean what we now know is unsure. Let's keep building. And I want to show you this. In Isaiah 40, we want to see how God is so remarkably incomparable. Who has, it says, measured the hollows, uh, the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Again, this is wanting us to come to the conclusion, who has done this? God has done this. It is a description of creation, a wonderful description of his creative work that speaks of his specific and precise involvement in the details of what he was making. Verse, verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man has shown him counsel? So who completely gets and grasps God? And who can advise him and instruct him and inform him? Verse 14, whom did he consult? These are rhetorical questions to which you are to form certain responses. Of which you should still be saying... No one. He didn't consult anyone. No man shows him counsel. And who showed him the way of understanding? Into verse 14. Verse 15 says this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for, burnt, for offerings. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I know of no stronger way to phrase it uh, to speak of the absolute richness, power, significance, importance of the creator in comparison to all that he's made. Now the challenge is, in our notions, creation is so important. It's so valuable. It's so meaningful. And, and all kinds of other things. Well, the scripture is saying here that all of the nations, the totality of them, are like a drop in a bucket. Now, uh, this is not uncommon. For example, we used to ration out water on our campus in India. And even then, we don't have taps everywhere. For when so when students are going to water plants or do other things, they have to fill a bucket full of water. As and when and if they're walking somewhere with a bucket full of water and a drop falls out, what do you think happens at that point? I mean, in your imagination, you probably see them setting the bucket down, falling to the ground broken and weeping. Possibly to never recover because a drop fell. Or, more likely, you see them totally ignoring the fact that a drop fell because it means nothing because there's a bucket full of water there. Dust on the scales, the same thing in India. They, you still buy your, your ve vegetables. They put them on a scale and they weigh it up. And nobody says, hey, hey, hey. You didn't wipe the dust off before weighing my vegetables. The reason why they don't need to say that is because how much does the dust weigh? 
it is negligible, it is insignificant, it ultimately has no effect. And, and, and listen to what it says. In all of that, in that building up, kind of in that putting down of the nations of humanity, of all of creation, it is exalting God in His fullness, in His being, in His power, in His wisdom. And then it ends like this in verse 18, uh, the, 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 the building of these thoughts. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare Him? That's a good question. To whom will you compare Him? It says in, in uh, uh, later in verse 25 of the same chapter, Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and on high and see who created these things. Who, who brings out the host of heaven, the, scar, the stars, calling them by, by their name. By the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you, O Jacob, say and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? The idea here is simply this. To whom will you compare the Lord? The scriptures remind us repeatedly of this. He cannot be compared with anyone. But what do we do? We inevitably compare him. And it's unavoidable too. Let's be realistic. Because we have to seek to understand him in the frames of thought that we are capable of forming. And as a result of that, it's comparison to the things we know. And the scripture itself does for certain assistance in understanding at times give us comparisons. Comparisons for, for a given set of understanding, for a given purposes that we then lay hold of and run amok. But for example, if you then who are evil fathers know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good things to us? And so we have the comparison of God, the giver, a father, to a human father. And people take that idea and they take that notion and instead of seeing it in its context and tracing that out and looking at the parallels, they run amok with it and say, well, God is like a father. And then they think of all of the details of a father and the characteristics of the father. They lay out what they conceive of as the ideal father. And then they connect that list that they have conceived of an ideal father to God as the description of him. You know, and it can inevitably lead to faulty conclusions. Such as, well, there, there would be some out there today who would preach things like this. God doesn't want you to be sick. He doesn't want you to have financial difficulties. He doesn't want you to suffer in any way. So all you got to do is have more faith, trust in him, pray, and th that will be fixed. Because, listen, you as a father, if your child had financial problems and you had all means to easily meet that, wouldn't you do that? If your child was sick and you had the way to, get to what was necessary to get him the recovery, wouldn't you do that? If your child was suffering and you had the means to alleviate that, wouldn't you do that? 
And what's the, what's the simple answer that you've been led through those statements to reply? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. Definitely if I saw my... Yeah. Well, God is just like that. God would never look down and allow his beloved children to suffer. Well, wait a second. What did you just say? Who, who did he send? The son from the father? And tell me a little bit about the experience of the son of God. Did he suffer at the hands of sinful men? Did he suffer even to the point of death? Was he mocked, abused, and mistreated? Could God have stopped that? Jesus, even as he is there in the garden, and, and Peter is jumping up to cut off ears. Right? He's telling him, look, do you not know that I could appeal to my father and he would send legions of angels? But this is the will of God. Now, the problem is, in, in, the, in the perspective of Peter, and often in the views of men, well, suffering is always bad. So when you have a small child, maybe, and they're suffering to uh, learn how to spell, and they're suffering to do their math homework, you should just do it for them, right? Because if you do it for them, they'll be better off in the end, won't they? Will they? If you do all that fo homework for them and they don't have to suffer through uh, the process of learning, then what happens? They don't get it. They don't grow. Well, I'm not going to let my child walk because almost every child who starts to walk, you know what they begin to do? Almost no child in the first few weeks of walking, do they not fall at some point? And I don't want my child to have to fall, so I'm just going to make him a lifetime crawler. Does anyone say that? No, we don't. But see, the, the challenge is we, we make these comparisons, and the Scripture will give us these comparisons with, that, that are specific for us to understand a particular truth. And then we go to town on that. And we spread that out and we insert a, a multitude of human ingenuity, which we've got to be careful because to whom will you liken and compare me that I should be like him? That's the question God get, asks, to which maybe we should go ahead and make our list. To whom will I compare? I'll compare you to fathers. I'll compare you to rulers and kings i'll compare you to you're we are not supposed to be doing that because the scriptures say this concerning him listen oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways this is such strong language let, let, let me give you a sense of this the the term here for unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. Is we are unable to sound the depths. It, it is nautical terminology. Of which things would be measured in fathoms. For us a fathom is about six feet. Where you would have a pipe that was filled with lead and you would drop it down because the boat that's sailing has to make sure it's not going to clip anything it's not going to run ashore it's not going to it's going to be 
safe sailing. So as they're coming to shorelines, they drop that into the water. And as, they, as they're dropping it down, it passes one fathom. And they'll sound, it's called sounding because then they'll announce that. And then someone will announce that to other people on the ship. One fathom. Two. But when they measured those, it's limited in its length. Whether it was river travelers or whether it was sea travelers, the limit that it would go down would be a certain point. And then if it went beyond that point that you've gone to the end of that string and it's still not hitting the bottom, then it would be declared unfathomable. Does that make sense? Because the fathoms have run out in the measuring rope, so it is unfathomable. Or sometimes they would just simply say, no bottom, which I think was less than accurate. Right? But, but the, the idea is, is that the scriptures are bringing here regarding God. It says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Now here is the biggest challenge because it's, it's laying out the fact that when we consider, well, why did God do that? What is God's purpose? What is his goal? How could he allow that to happen? All of these questions begin to go through our minds, which we then are seeking answers for. We're seeking justification for. God, I don't understand why you allowed uh, this small child to be born with this disease. You know, and, so, and, and sometimes uh, it's not uncommon for students at the seminary to even ask that question. You know, and they, they'll, they'll raise their hand and they'll, they'll say it like this. Um, I don't understand why God would allow this bad situation that has happened and this bad circumstance that has happened. To which I say, I think you're right. Let's carry on. Because they haven't actually asked a question. They've simply said, I don't understand. And they're exactly right. They don't understand. But what they're, what they're really getting at is, help me to understand. And regarding certain occasions and certain events, the scripture does reveal to us on certain things why God has done this. Why God has allowed that. But the challenge will come is when we think that everything that God says and everything that God does has to completely make sense to us or satisfy us. Or more better than that, that he has to justify to us why he's done it and or if he's done it, he has to justify to us why it is right. Why it is correct. Why it is acceptable. Why we should still honor him and glorify him and worship him. Even though he has knowingly allowed these miseries to come into our lives. But his ways are unsearchable. The way it says in Psalm 92 verse 5 it says this. How great are your works O Lord. Your thoughts are are very deep. 
keep dropping that line. It runs out. Psalm 36, again, the idea in verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains. And so here it, it works in opposite. Your righteousness is like the mountains, and so it ascends one way. And your judgments are like the great deeps. It's like your righteousness is, is, is higher than I can see, and your judgments are deeper than I can fathom. In Job, Job chapter 5, verse 9, it speaks of God. It says, who, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Now, the scripture is saying this over and over again, unsearchable, unsearchable, unfathomable, inscrutable. So what should we do? Walk away? Give up? No. I mean, you might think so. Well, it's too big, it's too high, it's too far. I cannot grasp it all. But here's where we have the richness, where God who is incomprehensible has nonetheless seen fit to make himself known. To make himself known in part that we might know his power. That we might know of his character. That we might know of his purposes in part. And the part that he does reveal is faithful and sure and true. And this is, this is part of the challenge that, that, that we enter into in, in grasping this. Uh, I want to consider this for just a moment. I just remember working through these things uh, uh, for years and years. Let us consider for a moment not only the incomprehensibility of God in his totality, but as we approach it with man's limits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God's word says this, and it says this so clearly that we need to really see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 and following, it says this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? You know, right there in that, in that simple listing, where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's, he's used the, the scope of terms that refer to the absolute intellectual elite of their day and age. The scribe is a reference to the scholar. A wisdom is one who is noted and looked to by others of, uh, as having achieved and accomplished. The, the debater is one who is, who is capable of dialoguing and at times demolishing the views and arguments of others. These were the guys. And into that, inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul says, where are these men? Where, are, where is the best of the best of what men's minds have to offer? And then it, then it says this in reference to that, which makes us a little uncomfortable because it's pretty humbling. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
Okay, so you take the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, the sharpest of the sharpest, and the farthest that he can achieve reaching the maximum limits, limits of man's mental endeavors, and it is yet ultimately foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. Strangely, look at what it says in verse 21. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of we, what we preach to save those who believe. That, that is such a packed verse. Since in the wisdom of God, we do not know God through wisdom. Now, here's part of the challenge, because I sit back, or my, my natural tendency, particularly in my younger days, I like to believe, was to, to look at a passage like this and say, well, wouldn't it have been wiser if God would have allowed people to find him through wisdom? Because maybe more would have found him, and so maybe more would have then been saved. And so why would God, in, the, in his wisdom, decide to, to work things out among men where men will not, by wisdom, by their own careful consideration, by their own meditation and musing, by any forms of study and inquiry, man will not, through wisdom, find God. As it says in Romans 3, uh, 9 and following, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. You think, there could have been a better plan. Well, there could have been a better plan because you have a different end purpose than he does. And, and there's a really unhealthy thing about saying there could have been a better plan than God's. Especially because the, the mental ability that you bring to bear in comparison with God's is foolishness. God dis determined in his wisdom, he has so designed it that men's wisdom will never lay hold of God. But it will be through the preaching through the proclamation of truth, which men will say, no, that's not right. Men will reject. For it says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians uh, 1, the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. Chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. Chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are, are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. 
God has been pleased to take people who, who don't have remarkable intellectual ability and make known his truth that they have come to believe and, and understand and submit to the reality that there is a God, that he is the maker in heaven and earth, that there is one savior, there is one salvation. Things that other men with remarkable natural abilities have not been able to lay hold of. And why is that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 explains to us why that is. Down in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, God's word says this. The natural person, the natural man, the condition that we're born into in this world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He hears what the Word of God says and says, Nope, I will not accept that. Now here's, he, he cannot receive them. Listen, he does not accept them for they are folly to him. The second part of verse 14 says this. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it speaks of a significant lack. And the lack is because there is a spiritual understanding that is necessary, which the natural man cannot lay hold of. And because he cannot, through the, through the exercise of all of his remarkable abilities, lay hold of those things, when he sees his lessers have laid hold of those things, it further signifies to him, that's proof of how false it is, because that guy believes it. You know? It, I don't accept it. That guy does, and he's nowhere near my level. So why would I want to stoop to his level? And, I, and it just creates that confusion. But look what it says right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's the condition of the natural man. But verse 12 says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the scriptures are revealing to us what is the essential differentiating element that enables one to understand the spiritual things and lay hold of and believe and abide the gospel. And that is that the spirit has come and given them understanding. And until and unless the spirit comes and gives them understanding, can they grasp it? Can they lay hold of it? No, it remains beyond them because they cannot. It is spiritually discerned. Uh, th these are such strong statements when the scripture makes them. And, and it humbly places man in a position where he feels to a, to a degree um, inadequate. But, but we have these warnings that come to us. If you stay in 1 Corinthians and you moved on to chapter 3 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. God's word says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 
Does that not read strangely? But what's interesting about it is, the reality is, if you, if you don't accept the following instruction, let yourself become a fool that you may become wise. If you don't receive that instruction, you're in significant danger of what? Deceiving yourself. And it's a horrible place to be. Because when someone has deceived themselves, do they know it? No, if they knew they were deceiving themselves, then they haven't actually deceived themselves. So that's why self-deception is so elusive, because nobody says, oh, that's me, I'm self-deceived. No, everyone is convinced that they are right in their own mind. But the scripture says, even if you think you're wise, listen, that's not how it works. You need to become a fool. In order that you may become wise. Which is basically backing off and saying this. Look. Who knows God? Who has met God? Who understands God? Who reveals things about God? How do we know these things? How do we begin to to grasp and consider these things? Uh, Let me take you for a moment to, to a fun one. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. Today's a little bit challenging because coming off of what I've been doing for the last few weeks, I've got about six hours worth of material I feel like unloading on you, but, you know. So we're going to meander a bit, but stay with me because the, the more scripture that we take in and the more consistently we see that it is communicating these things, I'm hoping we can grasp them. In, in Proverbs chapter 30, now most of us will know that Proverbs is in that section of scripture that we call wisdom literature. Uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it's written significantly by Solomon, but as we come to chapter 30, it is not Solomon. Chapter 30 is written by Augur. And what's, what's fun about that is nobody knows who Augur is. And so once nobody knows the answer, what do men get to do? Propose answers. Concoct answers. Uh, this much we do know, and let, let, let's try to limit it what we, to what we can know for certain. I'll share with you some of the more valid speculation. But uh, it's not a Jewish name. The term agar is not a Jewish name. It, it, it has linguistic elements as well as the father's name that is mentioned there. has linguistic elements that tie it either into the ancient Akkadians or Northern Arabia. Okay. Now, this would not be so surprising because in the days of Solomon, the fame of his wisdom had spread around the known world. All of the different kings and queens were sending their wise men to Solomon in order to test him. Many of us are aware and have read where the queen of Sheba also come and she came and she bring a whole retinue of wise men with her with her and she questions Solomon and asks him this and asks him that and everything that they asked him he was able to answer so that ultimately her response was there was no breath left in me just absolutely amazed by the wisdom of Solomon and one of the rich things about the wisdom of Solomon is 
Solomon had the privilege of being able to tell everyone because they'd say, there's never been anyone like you. There's never been any wisdom to match you. I mean, we could talk, talk about trees. We could talk about fish. We could talk about history. We could talk about technology. We could talk about spiritual things. It just seems like you have a grasp across all fields. It doesn't make any sense. And what could he answer to that? Where did it come from? Yeah, dad was pretty smart. I went to all the best schools, had full scholarship, fellowships. It's, can he do that? No. When he was young and it was told to him that he was going to be made the king, he was given to make a request of God. And what request did he make? That God would give him wisdom so that he could do what he was going to be entrusted to do and do it well. And so Solomon knew that his wisdom was from God. All those who came were so, it was so distinctively exceeding the wisdom of all other men that people were astounded. And it became well known that he received his wisdom from God. And it was not uncommon from our understanding for some of these wise men to come and realize there's no point in me going back home because my teachers don't have what this guy has. And so this is the place that I need to be if I'm going to make progress. Now, writing in the book of Proverbs here is Agur. But his, his writing is included with Solomon leads us to the clear understanding that he would have been known as a man of great wisdom. And so that plays into interesting what, what goes on as he begins to unfold this here in Proverbs chapter 30. He begins like this, an oracle, the man declares, I am worthy, O God, I am, or, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now, I know those using the old King James, it says Ithiel and Ukul. Um, that's not where our focus is. It, the, 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 who he's writing to and certainly his condition of weariness is interesting. Verse 2 is where it gets a little more uncomfortable because here is a man. To whom most of the men who he's communicating with would esteem him well above them in the realm of wisdom and understanding. And what does he say in verse 2? Surely I am. Now this is not, this, this. He uses a technical term here. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. Or. Again, for our fellows using other translations, too brutish, which was a common term that they would use as a reference to the lack of intellectual ability found in cattle. Okay? So, I am too stupid to be a man. Now, here's the challenge in that, because everyone he's saying that to would be like, hold on a second. If you're too stupid to be a man, then what does that make us when you're smarter than us? When you're more accomplished than us? If you're too stupid to be a man, what are you saying? 
and he unfolds he's not he unfolds it a little clearer and this is why he's faced this challenge he says in verse 3 i have not the understanding of a man i have not learned wisdom nor have i knowledge of the holy one well here's what he's coming down to now to two degrees wherever he was and whatever community and whatever background he was coming from to whatever degree they would have some measure of knowledge and agriculture of which solomon exceeded them they would have some measure of knowledge in animal husbandry of which solomon would exceed them they would have some measure of knowledge in cosmology and astronomy of which solomon would exceed them but here's what he's found out by coming there where he's come from what they thought was some measure of knowledge regarding god he's now come to realize was what nothing we may have some grasp of certain things but we knew nothing of the holy one well he's not done and here's here's why he knew nothing verse 4 who has ascended to heaven and come down who's had the privilege to be able to observe dialogue interact interview god to figure out who he is and what he's all about and what's the answer who has gone up and come back down well no one and he goes on and who has gathered who has gathered the wind in his fists who has wrapped the waters in the in his garments who has established the ends of the earth what is his name and what is his son's name surely you know so you see the problem he's facing he's he, all of the wisdom of his of his previous learning and he realizes but i can't even make the first step in a knowledge of the holy one because it's not accessible here by man it has to be given to us it has to be delivered and then he asks this list of questions and the remarkable questions because the question he asked here would even be an uncommon question for the old testament jew what is his name and what is his son's name Surely you know. And so where, where he's put that out there to which as he says that the, the answers would be like, no, I don't know. Who is it? Tell us. How are we going to know these things? He gives them the answer. Here's how you're going to know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then verse 6 says what? Do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. All right, so who knows God? God. Who reveals God? He alone reveals himself. And beyond what he reveals... Should we add to it? But what if we're really smart? What if we've really considered? Well, what is the wisdom of men? 
The wisdom of men compared to the wisdom of God is foolishness. You've got to, if you want to be wise, you've got to acknowledge this with, with regard to who God is and with regard to eternal and spiritual things, I am a fool. These things are unattainable, unaccessible. If I am to know truth concerning God, God has to make that truth known. And what he's made known, I need to lay hold of that. And beyond that, I can't go. And anyone who goes beyond that, who adds to it, the scripture says, what's going to happen to those additions? Do not add to it, lest he rebuke you, and you be found what? A liar. But wait, but wait a second. What if what I add to it is right? The likelihood of what you add to it being right is not very likely. And why is that? Because you're adding to it with what? The wisdom of man, the understanding of man, the limitations of men. One of the things that the scriptures remind us of so powerfully and clearly, hopefully you are aware of and or have memorized on your own, especially since I'm not locating it in my notes, Isaiah chapter 55 Verse 7, 8, and 9. In Isaiah chapter 55, God simply explains it this way. Your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts, says the Lord. You know, so if you were just about to say, who says? <laughs> says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. So high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So his ways and thoughts are above ours, immeasurably above ours. His judgments are unsearchable and inscrutable. And yet we would think to propose additions to what he's told us about himself. God help us. We have some wonderfully powerful warnings in Scripture. I mean, let, briefly, let's consider even the, the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 3. That's that wonderful passage where it says God has made everything in its own time. Verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into the hearts of men. Men have a sense of something beyond themselves, something more. It is interesting that generally speaking, still when men go to the most isolated and remote tribes, they have some kind of belief system. They have some kind of thoughts that there's more than this. There's something beyond death. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Yet here's the uncomfortable part is the end of verse 11. Even though they know there's something more. He's put eternity into the hearts of men. Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So they know there's something more. But they can't figure it out. But I will tell you this, it does not stop them from proposing ideas. You know, maybe that, that, that idea would be there's multiple gods. 
There's many gods. There's a God for rain. There's a God for snow. There's a God for wind. There's a God for sun. There's a God for mountains and a God for valleys, right? A God for seas, you know, and, and on and on. There's no end to the ideas that men will have. But the problem is this. Though they have eternity in their hearts, they cannot find out what he's done. And since they cannot find it out, they make it up for themselves. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 17 says this. After all the observations as Solomon is watching people and considering people and observing them. He says this. Then I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. You just can't figure out. Why God has done it this way, why God has done it that way, all of the hows and the whys, you just can't figure it out. And they go, it's not done. Verse 17 says, however much a man may toil in seeking. I mean, give himself like auger to weariness and exhaustion. He will not find out. Then it, go, it ends verse 17 by saying this, even though a wise man Claim that he knows. He cannot find out. But what does the wise man still say? But I know. But you can't find out the, the thought that men can on their own somehow pursue and somehow arrive and somehow achieve. We have those repeated warnings in the scriptures from things like Proverbs 3, 5 and following that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Where don't you lean? Your own understanding. So what do you do? You trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge Him. That's the idea of going back to what it says in, in 1 Corinthians. You, you, you become a fool in order to become wise. You say this, I trust not my heart, I trust not my thoughts, I trust not my ingenuity, my novelty, my wisdom. I recognize this, God alone knows Himself and so here's what I'm going to do. Whatever might originate in me, foolishness but what comes to me from him wisdom and I will take that and I will accept that we see uh, so many examples of that in the scripture for example Jesus takes in Matthew chapter 18 he takes a small child and he takes this child and he puts it in the midst of his disciples even in situations where there are others gathered around. Circumstances where you've got these Pharisees and these scribes who are often challenging him and asking him questions. And he takes this child and he puts this child in the midst of them and he says this. Truly I say to you, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now th that's, a, that's a stark notion. But what is one of the rea Well one of the things that happens about children. Now children can be very inquisitive. What is this and why does this work and how does this work. And they can ask all kinds of questions. To which the reality is this as a parent. 
we don't necessarily know all the answers. But sometimes we'll tell the kids answers anyways. When we turn the switch, how does the light come on? Uh, there's hamsters in the wall who are running on wheels and, and, you know, it takes the brakes off and starts going and the lights come on. Next day, you might find a hole in the wall as the child is searching for the hamster because what's happened? The child, in this case, wrongly believed what he was told because he doesn't know the answers. And so he searches for the answers so, so the dad can tell the child the moon's made of cheese. Now, sadly, that child might eventually go to school and argue with a teacher. But the thing about the child is this. They're inquisitive, and when the person that they look to and respect and trust gives them an answer, they buy it. Right or wrong, they buy it. Now, we, as the children of God, it's different. We become like that child. What he says... We take him at his word because he alone knows what his purposes are. He alone reveals who he is. And so there is that sense of abandoning ourselves, abandoning our own confidence, recognizing the limits of our own understanding and looking to and leaning upon him. One of the things that... Uh, is so rich in the scriptures. Well, let me just draw your attention to uh, Psalm 119 verse 97. We may end up spilling some of these thoughts into a second week. But I just want to share a few things here before we get out today. that to, Just to help set the stage. So that we, be, we, we question and we pray and we search the scriptures. Psalm 119 verse 97 here is, is a psalm of David. That psalm 119 is a wonderful one to read each of those sections. It says this, beginning verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So what is, what is this man committed to in his earnest endeavors? To know the word that God has revealed. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. He's going to make a list here. Makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So here he is making this list of men. And he's recognizing that he has achieved some level of superiority in understanding compared to his enemies. Which we can understand that. But then he also speaks of a superiority that he has compared to his teachers and compared to the age to it of all these experiences to bear. And what is it that enables this man to exceed his enemies, his educators, and the experienced? 
that he, he has meditated on, studied, given himself to the word of God. That is the glorious, necessary, and, and singular source. Uh, some of the challenge that we, we face in, in considering these things. And really I'm going to have to bring this to, to some kind of a conclusion. He speaks of the un, unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways of God. That however much we will attend our minds to them. Our conclusions will be faulty if they're not given us by him. Because our own considered conclusions that are not within the bounds of clear revelation could be what? Do not add to his word lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So we want to be very, very careful and, uh, and we have these warnings in the scriptures. Uh, this is what uh, Paul encourages to Timothy. He says, do yourself to present yourself an approved worker of God. A worker that does not need to be ashamed. Who rightly handles the word of truth. This is what you have to be about. One who rightly handles the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, ba irreverent babble, which will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then he speaks of men who have swerved from the truth. We have to be cautious and careful with regard to these things. Because the scriptures remind us of this. Even as we would consider, I don't know why God would do this. And I don't know why God would allow this. I don't know where God is when this is going on. And we struggle to come to our own answers. That's okay. Because his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unscrutable. And further, verse 34 of Romans 11 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord and been his counselor? He does not take advice from us. He does not need advice from us because his purposes and ways our thinking are so exceedingly superior. And who has given God a gift that he should be repaid? He needs nothing from us. He gains nothing from us. We, we have nothing of substance and subsequent to offer to him because all that we have and all that we are only by his power that we exist. And so that then the scriptures give this concluding statement. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Who brought everything into existence? It is all ex. That's the Greek word, ex, from out of God. He brought it all into existence. It is all D, through him, that it continues to exist. It is all ice, into or for him, that it was all made. And that throws again the mind of, mind, the mind of man into utter turmoil and twists. But here's what the scripture says, and I'll conclude with, with this passage. And if anything, my, my hope today and what I often will hope that happens as, as I begin sharing these passages and interacting with the students is they begin to question. 
They begin to question themselves, question their conclusion, question their confidence, question how they consider them things, question not only how do we know the things of this world, but how do we come to know spiritual things and how can we know them with any degree of confidence or certainty and, uh, and search the scriptures to see how that plays out. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, I'm going to read this in conclusion and then pray, says this, for thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. One of the fun things that I do with the students that we've not actually achieved today, I say part of the, the beauty of, of this is as we begin to do this, what you do is you enter the clouds. <laughs> and it really isn't until you've entered the clouds and, and, and recognized the confusion and the difficulty that you, you come through the other side. You know, it, it's kind of like when a plane is flying, it may be flying above the clouds, but if the pilot says, nah, if I go any lower, I'm going to go into the clouds and I'm not going to be able to see where I'm going. I'm not going to know what's there. So I'm just going to go ahead and stay up here. How's that going to work? At a certain point, it can be a problem. He has to enter into the clouds and it is only entering into the clouds in some degree of confusion. And as he works his way through the cloud, then he emerges with a clear sight of that approach. And so part of what I'm hoping the, th the scriptures we've looked at today do is cause us to realize this. The scriptures declare God as incomparable. It declare his wisdom as unsearchable and inscrutable. Why he does what he does. It tells us that he has so ordered his creation that, that men know there is something more. But through their efforts, through their intellectual endeavors through whatever they might pursue, they cannot find out God. He must make himself known to them. And God has seen fit that men will not find him through wisdom, but they will come to know him as he makes himself known in the declaration of the gospel. And God can give more eternal wisdom in the declaration of the gospel to someone in a moment than a man may ever achieve in a lifetime of studies. Because some things are spiritually discerned. They go beyond the limits of a man's mind. And a man has to come to recognize what I would propose regarding God would be foolishness. So I have to acknowledge that all of my thoughts and my proposals regarding God would be faulty. And all of his revelations regarding himself would be true. And like a child, I listen. Like a child, I learn. Like a child, I believe. Right, let's pray. Lord, thanking you for your word and how even in what is today a mere sampling of a multitude of other verses where you express these thoughts, you do humble us uh, by showing us how high you are how distinct you are above all that you have created. 
you revealed to us your exceeding uh, wisdom and knowledge. Uh, you put us in a place of, of, of great humility uh, to acknowledge our limitations and our dependence. But Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in, in the ignorance of our best efforts, but you have sent your son. You have sent your word. You have been pleased also to send your spirit that we might know you. Lord, we thank you for your word that in it we can know you and know you in truth. And we can follow you in truth. We recognize even as your word tells us that the secret things continue to belong to you. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Lord, may we endeavor with all the days that you give us to understand what you have given us. What is your purpose? What is your character? What is your delight? What is your will? And uh, may we be stirred with an increasing humility and passion to pursue and seek after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.